Well, today we continue to look at God's story, and we're trying to understand how our story intersects with God's bigger story. And I got to tell you what, today's story has got all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster. It's got action, adventure. It could be a best-selling like, novel today. It's got power. It has intrigue. It's got sex in it. And so, there's a slight problem, though, because nowhere in this story do we ever see God's name. And this is the story. We're talking about God, but we don't see his name. You will not find any derivative of the word God. Not Lord, not Savior, not Father, nada. Zip. And this story isn't referenced in any part anywhere else in Scripture. But we're going to talk about it today because it is an amazing story. It's one that though we don't see God's name written on the page, when you look again with the eyes of faith, you'll see God written all over it. The invisible becoming visible. You're not only going to be able to see God, you're going to connect with this story with your life experiences. Because you're going to see people having to interact with other people that don't have their best intention in mind. You're going to see them come across some bad guys with hidden agendas, and these bad guys seem to be getting ahead. And they're faced with some very critical situations and decisions, and you wonder, what are they going to do? And so if you will today, as we journey through this story, I want you to look for God. Look for his fingerprint in this story. And ask yourself the question, what would I do in the middle of this story? What would I do? Well, I'm going to get ushers, if you would come down and get Bibles in folks' hands. If you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to have one this morning. If you just forgot your Bible, just take it and you can return it on the way out. But if you don't have a Bible, go home with this one. It's a gift from the church to you. Well, the story we're going to look at today is Esther. And... Esther takes place. Last week, we talked about the exiles. They left Babylon after 70 years of captivity, and there was a first wave, and we talked about them last week. They went back to rebuild the temp- their home, the temple, and eventually the walls. Well, some went back in 538, but some didn't. Esther happens after that first wave, but before the second wave in 458 B.C., It's right in the middle. So some went home, some didn't. And we're talking about the Jews that did not return. And there's a set of characters I need you to really know and understand because this story moves a little quickly. So I'm going to help you put a name with a face or in this case, a name with a card. The first character is a king. His name is King Xerxes. So it's not the same king, King Cyrus, who released the first exiles to go home. This is a different king. This king is arrogant. He's known for his fits of rage. King had a queen. Actually, there's going to be two queens in this story, Queen Basti and Queen Esther. Then there's the Joker, or Joker. I'm from Massachusetts, so I've got to say Joker. <laughs> Just deal with it, because I'm going to do that all day today. The joker is um, Haman. 
And Haman, if you can believe it, is more arrogant than King Xerxes. And he has a, a bunch of hate in his bones. And it's really targeted at certain individuals. And then we have the ace, Mordecai. And you're going to see he's one of the heroes that God uses in a mighty way today. We're going to jump in in a certain part of our story, but you've got to understand what has happened to this point. So I've got to let you know that there was a huge party that happened. Kids these days would call it a rave. A huge rave went on. 180 days this party went on where this king was just flashing his wealth and uh, drinks were abound. The party ended. He wasn't happy enough with that. He extended another seven days and invited more people in. 187 days. And at the end at that party, he wanted to increase the entertainment. So he says, bring uh, Queen Vashti down here. Basically, let her flaunt herself around these drunken fools because they'll like that and they'll like me. Well, she said no, smart woman. He banished her from the empire, and she's no longer his wife, no longer the queen. And so he starts, you know, some time went by. He's lonely, he's depressed. He starts to realize what he did, and it's really hard to feel bad for this guy because what was he thinking after 178 days of partying that any good would come from that? But his advisors say, hey, well, we're going to find a new queen. And so all of a sudden, they devise this plan that would be the equivalent of Persia's equivalent of The Bachelor. Because <laughs> his advisors, these had to be guys. Because they go, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we go to all the provinces and one beautiful virgin from each one of those provinces, let's bring them here to the palace and let the, queen, uh, let the king pick who is going to be the queen. Right? Bachelor? You could only imagine that those advisors were going, if you need a judging panel, I'll be on your panel, right? <laughs> well, long story short, Esther was beautiful. You read about her, says so she was very beautiful in form and figure. She was Jewish, but nobody knew that. The only one that knew was Mordecai, her older cousin, who adopted her when her parents died. Those were the only two that knew. But Esther was beautiful. She won favor with anybody who came in contact with her. And there was somebody who was arranging. His name was Haggai, who was arranging the contestants. He watched over them all, and he just felt like Esther. She, he just put her, his favor on her, and just whatever she wanted. Gave her a special place to live. Gave her a special menu. Gave her, gave her seven maids to get her ready. It took a year before you could be presented to the king. Imagine that, getting ready for a year to go see the king. But he gave her everything so that she would be picked as the queen. And she goes in and the king falls head over heels for her. And right on the spot, she becomes Queen Esther. Jewish, he doesn't know. But the bachelor scene had just happened and Esther is queen. The other thing that happened prior is an assassination attempt was foiled. You see, Mordecai was in the government and he was by the gate and he heard some guards talking about an assassination plot to get to the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, he goes, checks it out and it corroborates and he takes care of business. 
He writes in his royal records what had happened. He says that it was uh, Mordecai that helped expose this. And then he takes care of business. And if you read, it says he had the guys impaled on a pole. This is not a bedtime story that you tell your kids. It's got everything in here. And that's kind of where we pick it up. And now the Joker comes on the scene. Haman had gotten to this position where he's second in charge. He's the right-hand man to the king. And oh, did he love the power. Somehow he convinced the king to command all the other royal officials that when Haman stepped in the room, they were to bow down to Haman. There's one guy that wouldn't bow down to him, and that was Mordecai, for a couple of reasons. You see, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. And if you have been with us during the story, you know that's an enemy of Israel. There is no way he is going to bow down to the enemy. Furthermore, uh, Mordecai is a Jew. And if he's going to bow down to anybody, it's going to be God. And so this didn't sit well with the joker. And we read in chapter 3, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. We are dealing here with a Hitler, somebody who wanted to do an ethnic cleansing. And so he proceeded, Haman proceeded, to pick a date of when that would to happen. He cast lots to pick the specific day that it would happen. It's like rolling the dice and he rolls it. And the date that was set for this to happen was 11 months out. He had the date. Now all he needed was the king's backing on this. He goes to the king and tells him, starts making up stuff. Those Jews are rebelling against you. You can't have this. And so here's what we'll do. And he takes out 375,000 pieces of silver. He didn't take it out there, but he promised the king that he would fund his registry with 375,000 pieces of silver. Commentators say that's about 70% of his annual revenue. What do you think he did? Yeah, he took it. He actually gave Haman his signet ring, which is like giving somebody your perfect signature and your identity. And he tells Haman, draft up the decree. And so Haman drafts up the decree for 11 months out. We'll wipe out the Jewish nation from young to old. They will be gone. And then he sits down and has drinks with the king as word gets out throughout the empire. He starts celebrating. But we read what... Jews and other people were what was going on at that time in, in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. And as the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was a great mourning among the Jews. Could you imagine how uh, Mordecai felt? Thinking, I did not bow down. And now my entire people is going to be wiped out. And you know, he's probably thinking, but God, the God of my forefathers who was so visible before, where are you right now? You're absent. I need you. There's so much evil right here. 
and the evil guys seem to be getting ahead. Where are you? It's a feeling that I have felt sometimes, and I know some of you, this is one of the points that connects with us. But Mordecai managed to get word to Esther, and he begs her, go to the king. Beg him for mercy. You've got to do that. And you can read, I'm going to paraphrase here, but Esther basically says, I can't. You do not understand. You don't go to the king unsummoned. That means death. I cannot go there. I know I'm his wife, but he has not summoned me for 30 days. I must have fallen out of favor. There is no way that I can go there. You need to look for somebody else who can carry this out. I'm not in the right place. That didn't sit well with the ace because he sends back this word. Chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He's saying, you are one of us. You are a Jew. And God's going to save his people no matter what you do. But perhaps this is your moment. Perhaps this is why you went from an orphan to the first lady. You've got a decision to make. This is it. This is your time. And this moved Esther. She replied, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. She seeks God. We sang that song, I won't move without you. Her first move, what's your first move? Her first move is to seek God, fasting. The fasting also involved prayer, which was talking to God. She sought God and then she moved and she was anxious about this whole thing because she knew what it would mean. But she went in and the king permitted her to go in. And he said, what is it that you want? And she said, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet. And she got him to go to the banquet. And at that banquet, she didn't tell him what she wanted. She says, I want you to come to another banquet in just a little bit. And I promise that I will freely tell you what I would like. Now, Haman, he is gloating because it's, the first lady and the king and him. He gets to go to these banquets. He goes home and tells his wife, oh, this is great. Will you look at me? Isn't this awesome? But at the same time, he was complaining because he kept remembering Mordecai, complaining about that Jew that would not bow down to him. So his friends and wife says, here's how you take care of that. Build some gallows and hang the guy on it. Get the king to allow you to hang him on it. He loved the idea. And so that night, the king was not able to sleep. He had insomnia. 
and he asked for the royal records, which I don't understand because if you ever, royal records are like medical benefit statements that you get in, mail, in the mail and you're trying to reconcile that and it would put you to sleep or reading a contract. He asked for the royal records and he comes upon an event that happened five years earlier of an assassination plot that was foiled, but the person was never honored. That was Mordecai. He was never honored. And right at that very moment, Haman comes in and he wants to ask the king, can I hang him? But he doesn't get that question out because the king says, Haman, what do you think I should do for somebody that I would like to honor? Oh, well, king... What I think would mean a lot to somebody that should be honored, um, I think you should put the royal robe on him and take him on the horse and parade him around and kind of act like king for a day. That's what I think. He's planning what he would do for himself. And the king said, hmm, I would like that. That sounds good. Arrange for the honors for Mordecai. <laughs> There's comedy in this story. Think about it, Haman, you can read it, has to go around. He, he dresses Mordecai in the robe, puts him on the horse, and he drags him around town. It literally says he had to proclaim, this is what is done for the person that the king honors. Oh, he went home humiliated that night. But he was looking forward, because he's arrogant, can't wait for that banquet where he can be with Esther and the king once again. And that day comes, and the banquet comes, and the king says, what is it you want? And Esther said, save my people. Save me. What? And she proceeds to talk about the decree that's been put in place about wiping out young and old, all the people. And he was enraged. Who did that? She points and says, Haman, who's in the room. He runs out, out the door, and Haman's terrified, runs to the couch where Esther's at and just throws himself and begs for mercy at the same time that the king comes in and thinks he's molesting her. And get this irony, he has Haman hung on the poles that he had set up for Mordecai to be hung on. Little tables turned. And then we read in the story the decree about wiping out the Jewish nation could not be reversed. But Esther stepped up and was able to get another decree put in place that says, allow us to defend ourselves. And so that day came when both were carried out. But get this, some people who weren't Jews became Jews and they were saved. And nobody could stand up against the Jews. They won. And Mordecai was elevated to that prominent position where Haman once was. What a turn of events. What many twists and turns. This truly is one of those things a novel or, or a movie could be made of. But I think it still speaks to us today. It's a timely story. Look, you got a, a, a single woman who appears to be uh, barely spiritual, because the prophets said return. They didn't return for some reason. We can't tell from the text. 
but barely spiritual, sleeping with a bad guy because she doesn't have any family around. Perhaps this is a way to getting what she wants, but God meets her and transforms her and uses her to save his people. It's a timely, timely story. And there's a couple things I want us to walk away from this story learning about our own lives and how our stories intersect. If you're taking notes, write this first thing down. God works his perfect story through imperfect people. God works his perfect story. Mordecai knew that. That big text where he said, listen, one way or the other, he is going to save us. Mordecai had the faith and trusted. God said he was going to grow this nation and bless us. He's going to do it. And for us, we can look around and our circumstances don't add up. There are some in bad spots, some in good spots. But no matter what, we need to have the faith that Mordecai has. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You see, God can work in difficult situations. When he comes face to face with evil, like Haman, not a challenge. God's above that. When he comes into uh, imperfect people like Esther who wanted to run, she didn't want to do it. God could work through that. Some would say, well, it's Mordecai, his wisdom, her beauty. That's how all of this happened. Or some would say, it's fate. It just happened. They were lucky. But if you look at the big doors that were swung open here, kind of big God doors on small hinges, there's no way that you say this just happened. Mordecai, he's a Jew in a foreign land. He happens to be in the government. He happens to be in a position that says, oh, my younger cousin could be queen. Haggai fell in love with her and did everything he could to get all the special treatment, tell her what you need to do to be queen. That just happened. Mordecai foils that assassination attempt, but the credit of him foiling it doesn't happen. It's delayed. Haman picks that ideal time 11 months out just happened. Then we'd see the untwisting, the great reversal. The king can't sleep one night and he stumbles upon an event that happened five years earlier. And then the whole unfolding of that second banquet. It isn't luck. It's God working his perfect story through imperfect people. And that ought to give you and I hope. I can't tell you how many times I have stood in this lobby, the school lobby, when we're at Six Forks, that lobby, And I would look out in the parking lot and I would see somebody coming who I haven't seen in a while. I know what they're going through. I didn't call them. I also know what the message is that day. I know the songs that are being sung. And I'm like, God, you are awesome. Because this is the very message that this person needs to hear. That's God working his perfect plan through imperfect people. You see, when you miss a plane, or it's delayed, or your schedule gets rearranged a little bit out of your control, or your circumstances get shifted beyond your control, relax. Because God is hurrying or slowing things down so that you can stand in front of that divine appointment. Relax in his 
timetable. He is working good in each situation. The other thing I want to call your attention to, write this down, look for opportunities where you are at. Right where you're at. You see, Esther didn't see this, but Mordecai helped her see it. You have a decision to make. You have to act. You know, you feel that tension of the time where you call to stand up in a very moment, maybe a moment of truth. Maybe you have a teacher or a leader who scoffs at your faith. What are you going to do? Maybe you have a boss that wants to make a move to increase the bottom line, but you feel the red flags going up all over the place. What are you going to do? Esther was called to look right where she was at. And it's easy to do this. Look over the fence and say, if only I was over there, then I'd do something. Or look at that person. They can handle it. It's easy to look over the fence. But have you ever given serious thought to the time and the place that God has you living in? You see, Esther wasn't, she faced a critical time, critical place. She wasn't the first, nor will she be the last. Look for opportunities right where you are. And the last thing I want to mention is this. Do not let what you cannot do stop you from doing the thing you can do. Do not let the things that you cannot do stop you from doing the thing that you can do. Esther said, I can't. And Mordecai said, you can. Here's right where you can. Here's the one thing that you can do. And that we can say, I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough resources. I'm too young. I don't know how I would fi fix this person's financial woes. I don't know how I could feed all the people in Raleigh who are poor. But what is the one thing that you can do that God has you in that place? What is it you can do? Esther inter interceded for her people. She did the one thing she could do. And she was willing to die for that. Jesus Christ interceded for us, doing the one thing that we cannot do. And that is make us right and justified in God's eyes. He provided a way for us to be saved. Maybe the first thing for you, maybe at such a time as this for somebody here today, it is to go, oh my gosh, I am disconnected from God. My moment is to believe and accept that gift. That's what this church is all about. The church stepping aside and saying, you need to have a relationship with God. Maybe that's your time as this. And out of there, step in the mission that God has for you. Imagine if each of us looked right where we're at for those divine opportunities and we had that confidence and the boldness of faith to step into that. We talk about the 88% of Wake County that doesn't go to church, right? That may mean they don't know Jesus Christ. They are not connected to God. Look at population data. Let's bring it right on home. Look at population data right within five miles of this campus. 129,000 people are not in church, and they may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's the one thing we can do? We just start to 
get to know them. Just form a genuine relationship. Do the one thing and let God guide the rest because you see, he is still pursuing our, his people and they live and work right next to me and you. Do the one thing and, and then just entrust God to continue, continually lead you to the rest because he's all about working his perfect story through imperfect people. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you are God that is relentless and you will pursue um, your people. Thank you for that. I thank you for this story and uh, the call to action to trust you and to act. We won't move without you. And I just uh, thank you for the story and the challenge it is for my life and also the hope that I get from it. And I pray that that's, as we go from here, we take that away. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.